Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 468 of the Constructed Criticism Podcast. I'm your host, Easy, and I'm joined by my co-host, one of my favorite people in the whole world, and, uh, you know, a person that shares the red beard genetics with me, Mason Clark. I was about to say that first part, Abe isn't here this week, so I didn't want you to get too confused, but it seems like you knew it was me. I wanted to make sure, you know. I do, I do love Abe. It's it's funny, you know. You took your your time off and stuff, and like mm-hmm. Abe and I were like, you know, we 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 had a bit of bonding. I I love Abe mm-hmm. Stein. Uh, Abe's not yeah, here this this week. Uh, I, I don't blame him, man. Like if I if I had to stay at work extra extra hours, I'd be like, you know what, guys, you guys you guys got this without me. So it's the Mason and Spencer show this week. I just got done talking about the modern BNR for four and a half hours. My throat's I cannot a little believe crispy. that you did that because like I was watching uh, while I was uh, writing like like doing some user research and like doing math for like work, and it'll be on your YouTube channel, right? Yeah, it should be up by the time everyone hears this. So I was like, man, Mason is going deep on this. This is a long stream. This is this is a long stream. I uh, I went in detail over the entire modern ban list about what I think could be unbanned, why things should stay banned, and sort of arguing against the arguments I normally hear for stuff, including my favorite argument, which is, "Did you know solitude and leyline binding exist, Spencer? We can have Hogak again." You've never heard somebody say that. Yes, I have multiple that's, times. That's, that's why I'm so mad about it. If you want to drive Mason absolutely insane, uh, you know, go to his Twitch chat, I guess. Uh, but this week is about, and every week is about always improving. We want to be getting better each and every week and share that with the listeners. Uh, magic is a grind, right? Like you're always going to be having to do something to either stay ahead of the curd or even just to keep up. Sometimes, sometimes a plateau is okay because like it's what you can do, what you can commit to. I wanted to go first this week, Mason, and talk about something that's really important to me in Magic, and that now that we have a return of the Pro Tour, I wanted to kind of highlight. So, one of the things that happened probably in the late 2010s, as far as Magic coverage goes, is people would watch and then say what they would do and why the player was wrong in Twitch chat, on Twitter, on social media. It was about being right. And it's really easy as a human to fall victim to this, where you want to watch somebody play and you want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to post about it. You want to tweet about it. You are X about it. It's Z about it. Z about it. No, because that makes it zitter. That's what he said it was. (laughs) Anyway, that's a terrible name. (laughs) But... Uh, and I've watched, I've actually, I, back in the day, I was, I used to host parties at my house to watch the Pro Tour. We would put it on the big screen. We would get drinks and pizza. And no matter where the Pro Tour was, no matter what country, we would adjust our sleep schedules. We would request off work and we would all watch it together. And it was really obvious the people that were watching it to be right and to correct these players that, you know, were at the Pro Tour. And those trying to learn. And I I realized pretty early that I had started one way and I wanted to shift to the other. I wanted to be the person that was watching to learn. And so this week I did that. I I sat down with uh, some of my best friends and and Quentin Pierce and Matthew uh, Kling, two former co-hosts of the show. And we watched the Pro Tour together in the Constructed Rounds mostly. 
I didn't watch any limited runs yet. I still plan on going back and watching some of that. But it was really refreshing to have them in there and talk about plays, not in like, we know better than these people, but in like, why do you think they did it this way? That was interesting. Here's why it was interesting. And I think it's such a mental shift that players need to have. I remember a feature match that Matt, actually it was of me, Matt, and Quentin had uh, at an SEG where the Twitter conversation went wild when Matt beat uh, Tom Ross after surgicaling them. And uh, Twitter went wild. They're like, I cannot believe you were bored in surgical in this matchup. These three are total idiots. Blah, 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 blah. And it drew him, it was really upsetting because Matt's reason for boarding in surgical was really good. Is because the, this is better than these terrible cards that I have in this match. Like, it, this can at least win me a game sometimes. These cards do nothing. But nobody wanted to talk about that. They wanted to talk about how somebody boarded in surgical against uh, Infect. And I think about that a lot, where it's like, why people do something, the reason behind it. And it was really interesting. It actually made me appreciate the semifinals a lot, because I think that a Tromir typically wouldn't be that interesting. But it made that Tronmere really interesting to watch. And while Twitch chat was going crazy, like, this is the most boring match in the world, all three of us were like, this is the most interesting Tron match we've ever watched. So it's a good mental shift and a good reminder to myself to, like, think in these terms. We should do our August Patreon episode just tonight when we're done. And you and I have our conversation we had from Discord finished about the Mulligan. So I have more to say about it, too. The, the one that sparked it all on Twitter. You want to do the August? Concert. You want to do the August Patreon only? T- yeah. July thirty first. I'll do it with you. We can do. It. Yeah, we'll, we'll just get it done. I, have do, it done. I think that but it's so interesting. The match was so interesting. I, I'm pretty sure the hands a keep. That's the. I'll go into why. I think Spencer is Team Mulligan, so it's a it's an interesting thing. So if you've seen it on Twitter, you're there. If not, we'll cover it in the episode. But I, I agree. I, I think that um, this is something that I think comes up on the other side of commentary as well uh, with a lot of players where it, and this is something that you know i think about and engage with a lot is sort of commentators who want to be right versus those who are trying to portray the match right there are people who in a very similar way that you mentioned kind of want to talk about what's the right play where oh look how smart i am versus trying to talk about the match or move the match forward or learn from it and it's something that like everyone sort of does at times but i think is i i would say really bad <laughs> and something that not you don't want to do and it's sort of like something you don't want to promote uh so can and I pull back the curtain on this because i actually i actually want to talk about this point sure. i i hate covering amulet titan matches for this exact <laughs> reason because i and mason t- help me be better i don't know what to say <laughs> because i'll be like i will walk the player through like okay here's how they're gonna win here's how they're gonna win they don't do it mm-hmm. here's how they're gonna win here's how they're gonna win they don't do it i'm like okay at this point Let's just talk about the game and like what's going on. But then I look hmm. back and I'm like, that was bad coverage. I made this player look bad. I sort of my typical. I am typically play by play, although with Abe, I am. I, am I, I like role. the play by play for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah. I play by play is like guiding the ship. It's like being the director. I, I sort of when I'm doing that, I, I sort of think. Uh, and if you're an aspiring computer at home, the best thing to do is actually just to say what they're doing. And if you're going to try to do predictive coverage of it and like say what they might do and you're not 100% sure you might say something along the lines of like and I'll, you'll see often with these amulet titan players they like to either go for the haste or to Larry West the bounce line to set up another titan we're going to have to see the way that Dominic Harvey approaches 
it in this game. He is known for playing Amulet Titan. He might have a really unique approach. Let's find out while Dom's thinking, right? And so that way, if Dom does anything, you sort of have it covered, yeah. and then you just say what's happening. A big thing for me in commentary is sort of being like, I want someone to be able to know what's going on in the match without watching it, which is why like me and the Pro Tour commentary team sort of clash in ideology because they are very much wanting to talk about it in a much more casual sense, which is fine, and I want it to be like a radio drama that you can follow along. And what's, so, so, what's so funny is I was about to... I was actually about to compliment the Pro Tour coverage on what I think was the coolest. It was the best coverage. Yeah, the coolest play of the entire, the the Haywire Might My Own Ring play. They had been going through the motions of talking about the options that Christian had, and they did, had not seen the line. And it actually mm-hmm. made the line really dramatic and really fulfilling, mm-hmm. and it made you really appreciate it. And then on the reverse, it made the fact that, you know, our Pro Tour winner forgot to use his treasures all that more impactful later, where it it cost, it could have, we don't know, but it could have cost him the game. Yeah, for sure. I I think the the Haywire Might the Bridge line is a really good example of like, I should say, it's a really good example of like, if you're going to do predictive stuff, make sure no matter what happens, you make the person playing look good. Because your job as a commentator is not to sound smart. It is not to look at a smart I am. It's not a way to build your platform. It is your job is to build up the game being played and convey the information to people who maybe don't know what's going on. So to have a line like that moment happen where it's like, who else would see this line to have the haywire might go in on the staring bridge, plan two turns ahead of time. We saw him play around the crux with the chromatic sphere while playing towards his end game. This is why Christian Calcano is the calculator. Is like a really good moment of right. like, yeah, no. I thought I thought they did great so. on coverage for that reason, and yeah. I started demanding to do play by play because I really hated doing color uh, mm-hmm. for for like this exact reason. Like I didn't know how to do it, and I think that like you know when I when I do coverage in the future, I think you just made me a better commentator. So thank you. No problem. I'm gonna do it. Yeah, I, really quickly. I, for starters, it was so great to have Cedric back in the booth, just clearly to go to MTG coverage and. I thought Riley and Corey were really good together. I'd seen them in the past together. I think there was something different, like them being together in person, I think made it a lot easier, which I had not had the the blessing of doing any NRG coverage or anything like that in person. I've done it for other smaller things. That definitely is a different vibe. So I think they did great. My always improving moment uh, after I've just done a little bit to help everyone with where I think is pretty good commentary. Take it really bit. My always improving moment from this past week was really just focusing on playing the best deck I possibly can and trying to optimize that for sort of what's going on. I think I mentioned in our pay, uh, Patreon Discord, which you, know, you can get access to if you're a patron of the show, is I was talking about how I think Pro Tours and the real world are pretty different. And even Pro Tours, the challenges, the energies, the SCGs, it's all kind of different. And I am playing events that are in real life and sort of preparing for them. And originally I was going to be playing a team tournament this weekend. Ultimately, my mom closed on her house so i helped her move up some last couple things i wasn't able to go on saturday which kind of sucked but whatever she needed my help i had still prepared for this tournament though before i knew i had to really help and do that and i was preparing for rectos and it was different than what i would do if i was playing the pro tour for example i had a conversation with a friend where i was like i think i would play fable at the pro tour but i'm gonna play season pyro this weekend because i don't think there's gonna be as much of the mirror as much orcish bowmaster as i would expect at the pro tour and we actually saw the winner end up playing four fables in the main deck and I don't think had any season pyromancers. And that's sort of like, you know, us playing to our different fields, right? They were respecting Bowmaster a bunch. They weren't forced to play into Bowmaster. Meanwhile, I was trying to be like, yeah, I don't think these people have it. 
there's going to be a wider variety of decks. I want to have the more upfront, powerful cards short term. Uh, and so, you know, just playing those different games and getting prepared for that and really thinking about, okay, what am I playing and what is different about that? And so, you know, while the modern Pro Tour, you might have more things for Tron, I might not expect as much Tron, for example. So that was my always improving moment. But let's go on to Patreon really quick because I want to give some Patreon shoutouts to Austin. Austin is our newest patron of $5 or more. This gives Austin access to that Patreon Discord. You know, regardless of how busy I am, I'm trying to keep the daily discussions threads going as often as I can. And it's it's been illuminating just like kind of how much conversation can have in that channel. We've got the Serious Gamer channel where people go outside of the daily discussions to talk about serious topics, whether it's mulligans or things like that. There's lots of channels in there. You've got people posting deck lists, people asking for advice on deck lists. It's a really good community that have a bunch of people with the same goals as you if you're listening to this podcast. So and people, and they're say, rounding up their own testing group. Well, yeah, we, we got the request to once again, you know, give people an opportunity to get more testing, you know, and if you're lucky, Mason will flame you on Twitter when you post a hand. <laughs> so to get yeah. their real traction. That was the worst hand I've ever seen. That's an important <laughs> lesson to them. It's an important lesson. I, I may or may not have like woke up one day and just text Mason this hand. <laughs> like, hey, would you keep this? Just, <laughs> just to keep just him on his game. toes. Like see if he, see if he really feels that way. Uh, Psychic damage. But but <laughs> straight up, thank you so much, Austin. Uh, and then I just want to give a special shout out to our, our sponsor that's been with us for a long time in Pure MTGO. Uh, I got their sponsor at MTGO Traders is really awesome. I, I got to pick up a bunch of cards the, this last week. And uh, it's such a really good process if you're looking to own cards instead of rent. I don't think enough people know about this. And... You know, I have teammates that do both. I have teammates that own cards on MPGO. I have people that rent. And as somebody that has done both, like, I do think that I want to shout out MPGO Traders and our our sponsor, Sponsor, that it actually is a really good service. And if you're looking to sell cards and put them back into the economy of players so that players can continue to own cards, uh, if we all always sell to the people that rent cards then you actually can't own them, right? Because they're they're just not in the economy anymore. And I would highly encourage you that if you're debating between do I want to sell to a rental service if I own cards uh, or do I want to sell to a service that, that sells cards, you should sell to the service that sells if you want to own and then you should sell to a service that rents if you want to rent. And I just wanted to talk about that really quickly because I think it's valuable. So a really quick adjustment to the Patreon that needs to happen because of the fact that we have an editor now, because of the fact of like the way the show's going, and because we want to include more people, we will be lowering the tier to the live shows from five dollars to the lowest tier. You get access; every patron gets access early access. Every patron gets live shows, and the you still won't get access to the Discord though uh, until that five dollar tier. So if you want to join the conversation, it's still the best tier, but the, the reason for this is a few. One, I want to pay our editor. If if $1 a month is not enough to, you know, pay pay our editor, like, that's okay. Like, the show will always be free. But I want to make sure that we're, we're doing what we can to help him out. So thank you so much to those who do that. This already has actually went live. And it is available now. You're, if you're watching now, you could be a $1 patron. Let's talk about modern, though, Mason. This is the format you cut your teeth on. Yeah, modern is... Even though it's very different than when I first started, it is definitely the format that I am sort of known best for. 
and have consistently, you know, been kind of on top of and do my best at. So, although I say that, you know, I qualified for the pro tour playing standard and pioneer and stuff, but you know, whatever, uh, <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. A, for a while, I think most of my PTQ top eights were in limited before they were in standard. Well, that's not true. I guess technically it started in moderate, but so we got some really good feedback the last time we did kind of one of these. Let's just talk about the fun episodes. We're not we're not ranking the decks for people. We're just going to present them with information and our thoughts and kind of have a conversation between the two of us. We have 10 decks or 11 decks to talk about today. 10 decks, I believe. 10 decks to talk about. And I'll just read off the decks. We're going to talk about Scam, Rhinos, Tron, Blue Black Merc, Blue Red Merc, Hammer Time, Yogg, Titan, Four Color, Creativity. Those are different decks. Four Color Control and Four Color Creativity. And living end. So let's start with the deck that won first. Mason, how'd you do on our Patreon prediction bracket? We did pretty good. We did a thing in there, a little game that was like deck that was going to be played the most, deck that was going to win, and something else. I can't remember what it was, but played the most was Scam, and I was that was the easy part of the prediction for me. Scam was the most played deck, and for my money, is the best deck. And I've thought it for a couple weeks, and a lot of people are like, "Oh, I thought you would think Four Colors the best deck or whatever," but. That's a different era, right? That's a different deck that I'm associated with. Um, and while I like playing those cards, I think they're strong. I, I don't think they're very good right now. And Scam is just really, really good. And there are a couple of reasons why I think Scam is so strong. First, it is incredibly mana efficient deck, right? Ragavan, Thought Seize, Push Slash Bolt, depending on where you go, uh, Orcish Bowmaster, and then the Fang Death combo and Undying Malice combos with like Grief and Fury where a sort of earned scam moniker are all really, really good. And I've definitely played a lot of games with this deck. I've been jamming on Moto somewhere. It's like, I give like a one lander and I never draw a second land. And I cast like nine, 10 spells over the course of the game. And it's so easy, you know? And this deck just is a mid-range deck with some unfair elements to it. The Parmesan, as it were, that little bit of cheese. And it just goes on the play and just says like, hey, here's something you have to answer, go. And if you're not winning with the scam deck and maybe you've been having issues, my suggestion to you is do not keep sevens that do not have a powerful turn one play, like Ragavan on the play or Grief or Fury. Just always go to six. And that sort of thing like really changes the dynamic of this deck. But I, I had interactions with people like, oh, I, I never do well with this deck. I'm like, well, do you mulligan a lot? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, you don't, you're not playing the deck right. But the deck is really, really strong. I'm curious to know what you think, Spencer, because this was sort of very quickly public enemy number one after the sort of original four color ring hype died down the first week yeah I, I would argue that i won our competition in the discord by the way i was the only one i believe that hit two for three uh between the the most played deck the best performing deck and the deck that wins the best performing deck was merfolk did you have that down oh my gosh no it wasn't yes it was it had an 80 percent win no we could have we're not going to argue about this right now but <laughs> There are other factors in best performing deck, but I do I do think that the thing about scam that is really interesting. I really loved the conversation. I think you started around this in the Patreon Discord about the Mulligans. We were watching a game where scam got flooded, and I was like, it seems free to play the the untapped man lands or the untapped creature lands. And then we had a really good discussion in our team Discord about it about like. Well, here's why you don't want to do it, because here are the other key turns that matter. Here is the problem with playing these creature lands in your Blood Moon deck and all this stuff. But it was really interesting to me because it was like, okay, 
if the deck could play a creature land, it would probably play like like I think Matt Kling was like you would just play Fairy Conclave if it was black or red, but that's not the life you live. So you don't get to play creature lands. Because like Mason said, the deck is so light on mana. Like when you're down to 20 lands, 22 lands in your mid-range deck, it means that your curve has to be so low. The fact that this deck gets to get away with playing something as mana intensive in a lot of aspects uh, as Croxa is, is, it's interesting. It's a lot. You know, this deck isn't trying to cash Yeldred. It's trying to top out at, at things like, uh, things, things like, um, Table of the Mirror Breaker. And that is yeah. just very different. I mean, uh, than other things. I mean, the, 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 I think the actual best performing Rakdos deck topped out at a one of Sheldred. It was the, yeah. A lot of us have them the sideboard for like rhinos, the mirror, like grinding matchups, you know? In those matchups, you can afford to sort of miss for a turn or two, and it's okay, right? Like, you don't have to have your children on four against Rhinos, as an example. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, Fable and Season Pyromancer are typically the most expensive cards. And then if you do flood out, you get to do things like cast your Grief, cast your Furies, right? If you're playing Season Pyro, you have the flashback on the Pyromancer, right? All those things going on. And we're even seeing some innovations, right? There's the new Persist build of Scam that's coming out where they play, you know, the troll and the oliphant, and then they persist those back, but also have more pitches elementals, right? A pitch for the elemental card. So th- there's a lot going on with the scam deck. I think it is very, very good. And I think if you're someone who likes mid-rangey, grindy decks, this is the deck for you. And there's just, you can't play a fair deck that doesn't have some unfair element, like Ragavan and Murktide, I would argue of that for uh, the Murktide deck. Um, and this deck just has like the turn one grief and fury and stuff like that. And they are definitely beatable and we're seeing the format adapt to them, but they ask a lot of you and especially grief turn one, just especially when you're on the play, it just, it is so backbreaking. You get double griefed. I want to rewind to something you said where you talked about like, you know, these decks play 20 lands, right? So it's like, well, what happens when you get flooded? You just lose the game. Like none of your spells are that powerful. The deck has built in flood protection in the form of, whether you're playing Bowman, whether you're playing Fable, or whether you're playing Zero Pyromancer, you're actually building in that flood protection on your own. In addition to that, it also uh, has the ability to do other things. So, for example, um, Dothy Voidwalker is can 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 kind of fill that role and things like that. And then uh, Castle Locktwain and kind of the spell lands do that. So it's not like it's twenty lands, you know, hunky dory. You talked about games where like you're you're stuck on one and still casting a bunch of spells. And I think about the number of games where like I get stuck on two with Murktide, because I played a lot of Murktide, where I just played the whole game. Like it didn't even matter that I was on two lands. That is so different from modern of old, right? Where like I needed to get to four mana. It was like it was like super extended. It's not like that anymore. It is almost like what Legacy was during the SEG times of Legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that this deck specifically highlights that better than most decks. I also think one thing about the scam deck really quick here is it is the best Orcish Bowmaster deck, which is one of the best ways to answer Ragavan and the ring. When we talked about uh, Orcish Bowmaster in our preview episode, as a lot of people, they were like, yeah, it's like pretty good. Like it can't be that bad. It's strong against Ragavan and like randomly lines up well. And I think we basically everyone, as we all know, underappreciated the ring. And the ring just 
is enough to be like, hey, being a strong Bowmaster deck is good. Being the best Bowmaster is strong. And this deck just sort of was playing things like Blood Tithe Harvester before Spencer, which is like not an embarrassing card in, you know, Magic as a whole, but is in the context of Modern. And so like getting this upgrade to a flash threat that beats Ragabonds in the mirror, lets you play around uh, cards like Fury, just gives you so much utility in your game plan. Scam is just really good. Yeah, I agree. Let's move on to Rhinos really quickly. Mason, why don't you why don't you drop some Rhinos knowledge? Yeah, Rhinos has been performing really well um, over the course of the year. It dipped a little with one challenge win uh, since the release of Lord of the Rings, but then put up three players in the top eight of this Pro Tour. A very strong finish. Remember, uh, when we're talking about these things, it is not all modern. There is some limited involved, but end of the day, Rhinos did really well, and we sort of talked a little bit in the past about how like Rhinos is a tempo deck and your goal is to get these big bodies on board and then protect them. And subtlety being added to the Rhinos deck did a lot to make it harder for people to catch up to you and made it so things like Omnath are not a huge problem. And then having subtlety and force negation made it so that you were able to actually fight over the ring and those sort of packages. But notably Loran's reveal or uh, revelry. Sorry, I think it's the card's name. The, three blue blue draw three island cycle card has made the deck have more blue cards for the blue fetch the blue pitch cards while also having a high land count so it's able to consistently do its thing on turn three much like the living in deck so rhinos great deck has been doing pretty well and these innovations to have it be more pitch focused were really good and we saw players get rewarded with that with three top eight performances this weekend so it, it did have three top eight performances, but I want to I want to be clear that after looking at this while you were talking, I actually also might have only gone one for three on the predictions because it actually looks like Rhinos might have had the most eight or two better decks if you include four and and three color Rhinos, which would make that the best performing deck in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I have I have a couple things that I want to highlight about Rhinos specifically. There are a few cards that are flex-locked that I find really interesting. Mason and I, historically, have told people, this deck is bad, this deck is bad, this deck is bad. And then, like, I don't know, six weeks ago, we both were like, hey, just so you know, this deck's not bad anymore. It's actually pretty good. What Lord of the Rings coming out? I think it won the challenge after we said that, Mason. But there are some interesting things that happened. One, the ring came out. So this is one of the decks that does not play the one ring but plays cards specifically to beat it in a really interesting number. So, for example, this format, we'll get into this later, became about Force of Negation in a lot of ways. And additionally, it has the ability to play two cards that are seeing modern play that also the One Ring is sad about, and that is Stomp and Questing Beast. And it is happy to play both, and different decks will do that depending on things. One of the my favorite innovations from this weekend, though, is actually playing this member in this deck. I was really impressed by this member as a one-mana removal spell from both the Monogreen Tron deck, which is the deck we'll talk about next, and this deck uh, as an ability to take out a lot of things. Like, we saw going into this Pro Tour, Sheldred starting to see modern play with the blue-black decks. We saw, you know, we, we already know about things like uh, Yawgmoth. Like, the number of X5s had gone up exponentially and Tron decks, including the one that I had I had played at the last challenge that we talked about last week, didn't play any dismembers. And I really love the inclusion of dismember in this deck as a way 
to have one mana spells like Dead Gone that it does, while not while not forcing myself, I don't know, to like be weak on the play to certain things. So I was gonna say it's really important in stuff like scam, right? Where you know scam players can go on the draw against you and be like, all right, turn one grief, you only have your four dead gones to really interact. But now if you have like dead gaunts and dismembers, now you can actually fight back over that along with subtleties and force negations. And that matchup's already pretty good for you, but like just remember in general, like you were saying, just having more one mana ways to do something really, really helps the deck. When Mason and I were saying that this deck was bad, and I actually got feedback this week about this exact thing, this is why I want to talk about it. It's because four fours weren't that good in modern for a hot minute, right? Like it just a four four trampler didn't do enough, and now two four fours is like probably the biggest creature in play. Also, the flex slots were way different, right? People were playing things like Brazen Borrower or whatever. And, like, things started shifting when Tamiko and Stoyer and Bullwinkle put uh, Mystical Dispute in the deck. And those players started dominating with that deck for a bit. And that sort of change is big, right? Like, Brazen Borrower is, like, a barely playable card. It is flexible, but it is, like, barely playable. Mystical Dispute is incredibly strong in some matchups. And in your tempo deck, you are fine to play bad mana leak, basically. And this deck was just down to do that. So sometimes it high rolls against some of its best cards. Also, when we're talking about stuff, listeners, we can't know the future. So we can only talk about the time at hand, right? So if you're like going back and listening to one of these shows, it's like, yeah, things changed. Like metagames yeah. adapted. <laughs> yeah, like right now I would have two stomps and one uh, petty theft in my deck in addition to the cards that we talked about. And it's probably really different than other people in Rhinos, but like this is actually probably the deck that I play in my next modern challenge because I haven't played it since like it first came out. And it's something that I want to try a lot of. Mason, our next deck to talk about is a deck that gets an unfair amount of hate, and that is Tron. I don't know if it's unfair, but Tron gets a lot of hate for sure. Tron is, I, I think, a big reason why I do not like four color in the metagame right now. I think it is pretty clearly the best one-ring deck. And I think the reason for that is really obvious. We sort of saw week one players at the SCG when the set was on pre-release do well with Tron and the one-ring because the one-ring asks a lot of you when it comes to mana, right? It gives you cards. It gives you time and says, hey, if you provide the mana, I got you, right? And Tron's like, hey, I'll have God's mana. Can you provide protection and cards for me? And it's like, heck yeah, I can. And so there's a lot of synergy working there. And Tron generally is really good against these four color decks. It was a deck that was a problem before, beatable, but a problem. Now with the one ring, you can't run them out of resources. And the Tron decks just get to have this card that buys them a time and then also gives them an influx of cards. And so a lot of times when you're playing against Tron with a deck like Rakdos Scam or Jund of Old or Murktide, you sort of win by answering the first couple threats and then they sort of hit a land patch or some redraws and you kill them, right? Now with the ring, that doesn't happen as much because they have more threats and more cards. So Tron is incredibly strong. It is underappreciated pretty regularly by players because it is a play pattern that not a lot of people find fun and gets a lot of hate because it feels like herder, you know, play my layups, play my big guy, you lose. And it's reality just a control deck. And that's kind of what's going on with it, you know? And we talked about that in Staring Bridge Tron list as a way to approach things. And we saw Team Handshake 
really innovate on the Tron list and do a lot of, I think, smart things. And Tron is, you know, I think in a really good spot for as long as the ring's around. I agree. Um, I'm a big mana guy. I'm not, I don't pretend not to be. You know, Tron isn't my first choice when it comes to big mana decks. Uh, I like, the, I like those prime times, but I do think that Tron is, uh, so sorry, Mikey, is the best control deck in modern right now. And if you don't see that, you don't feel that, I don't think you understand what's happening. And what one of the things that it does really well is it pushes the other control decks out of the format. Or not out of the format, but it like keeps them in check too. So like for example, the four color Omnath deck is also a really good one ring deck. Like really good. I think to say that it's not is kind of crazy. Like it's a deck that keeps things like another control deck, like creativity out. Um but what Tron does is it says, okay, well, I'm gonna control the game. And I'm going to adjust my my deck in more ways than you can because I have access to flex slots in my lands. I have it because of my mana base. I have access to flex slots in my seven, like in my what 85 card deck because of Karn. Like it gets to adapt really interesting. And you'll see really huge variations in Tron lists compared to other control decks in the format. I think it's a really, really cool opportunity. I posted. Uh, probably where I'm going to start. I am going to be playing Tron at a, well, depending on our conversation, Mason, on this podcast and the upcoming band announcement. If things do not change, I will be playing Tron at a uh, Unified Modern uh, 2K coming up. So uh, let's talk about Blue Black Merc, Control, Not Control, Midrange. This is a deck that I have some, have you, have you played with this deck, Mason? Yep. Yeah, this is a deck that I have a little bit of experience with. I'm kind of curious. My my, I, if you watch the pre-show, Mason and I talk about this deck a little bit. And I, this deck to me, like was like a big big mid range deck. I feel like you feel like it's more of a control deck, and I'm kind of curious to talk about it. Especially looking at the one that ate to the Pro Tour, and sort of I, I had done similar things of Star on Ransom is like a card you could play if the One Ring doesn't exist, but the One Ring exists, so. Stop playing Sauron's Ransom and play cards that work well with your One Ring, like Archmage's Charm. Uh, and that could be your card advantage card as well. So, like, when you have Archmage's Charm and Counter Spell and, like, these Fatal Pushes, and Orcish Bowmaster is really a sort of, I think, defensive card that can be proactive against the ring, those sort of cards push me in a way that's like, hey, I'm trying to play a longer, more interactive game, and I'm not trying to do something like Murktide, which can play Jun-style games, but more often than not does, or tries to at least go things like DRC, Shredder, Ragavan, Early Murktide, and then protect them. This deck, when I was playing, I found I could play a longer, grindier game and then, you know, eventually turn the corner with one of my Murktides, whereas other decks didn't quite go that way. And this deck felt totally medium to me for what it's worth, but uh, maybe it's just early version still. I, I think this deck is straight up Murktide. I think it's like, it is a slower version of the same deck. And what I, what I mean by that is, like, it is trying to control the game in the parameters in which the game is to be controlled, and then it is trying to be aggressive in, in the matchup that it gets to be aggressive in, and it just happens to be able to be aggressive in less matchups than Murktide. This is just my opinion, Dad, spitting from the, you know, the, the brain here, but the reason this deck, I think, started to exist was two cards. Well, three cards. Force of Negation, Lorien Revealed, and Subtlety. It was like, okay... I have identified these cards along with Orcus Bowmaster as good cards. This deck now exists. Like I have a, 
a layout for what this deck is going to do. And I really, uh, I'm with Mason. I really like the innovation of Archmage's Charm over things like, uh, is it Sauron's Ransom? Like, that's a huge innovation. I think this deck might have started with, like, four spell pierces, which turns out to be too many when you think about kind of the way the format plays out and actually playing more removal spells. Like, I think the the, the best list had a blood, thirst, uh, blood Chief's Thirst in it and things like that. Just really good innovation for the deck. And I think this deck has a spot in the metagame. But the question becomes like, okay, is is this the best direction to go? Or is there a way to build Merkite differently? Because there's one card that specifically that I think is gone, Mason. And we saw that this weekend. And that is Ledger Shredder. I think the death mm-hmm. of Ledger Shredder is actually the truth of the weekend. Yeah, Ledger Shredder is pretty medium. I mean, the thing about Ledger Shredder is it is better than Brazen Borrower and Merktide, which is like a big part of it. And then once you start having Merktide mirrors everywhere, having Shredder be bigger than DRCs matter. But when there aren't going to be Merktide mirrors everywhere, there's no reason to have Shredder. Even though Shredder is also good against Cascade decks, right? Like against uh, specifically Rhinos, it quickly outgrows a Rhino and you can at least start chump blocking. So Ledger Shredder is sort of falling off. And just in general, Merktide is pretty medium and we saw it play out that way at the pro tour right at the highest level players are going to play things they think are the strongest and not always what they enjoy and in the real world people will play what they enjoy more than what they think is the strongest and you know murktide showed up and like yeah you know there are some people who played it they did okay you know nothing over the moon it's obviously a mixed format but like murktide still just pretty good kind of looking over the best performing murktide lists I, I, it's just my opinion. And, I, you know, I, I could be wrong. This is something that I want to innovate with. But, like, I don't think there's something holding Merktide back from having the exact same belief in the blue package that the the blue-black deck has, but then still getting Ragavan, right? Like, we've seen Merktide lists go all the way down to zero DRCs before. And I think that is the future, is that... You you end up in a place where I, I can even see like these two decks merging and just like getting getting three colors. The Merktide has to adopt the ring. Like the reason I think you get to play stuff like blue black with the four subtleties right. and the four force negations is the ring subsidizes your loss of cards. Right. And Merktide, like Explosive Federation is good. It is not the ring good. I think that like that means that you have to give up some of your some of your sweethearts, right? Like if you're gonna play red and you want to play Ragavan, I, uh, this is just my opinion, is that you have to give up DRC. Like, you cannot be doing this and have the the same type of games that you need to have in this format, and then it then it changes the deck. Because, like, you still have powerful things. You still have Expressive Iteration. You still have Unholy Heat as, like, a great removal spell. You, but, like, I agree with Mason. You need a way to recoup things that this deck doesn't currently have, because I don't think the, like, Lorian reveal all of a sudden, like, does the same thing as the ring, right? Like, it's flood insurance. It's not, but it also acts as lands. There, there's a lot that needs to happen here, but I, I think that there's a future for these decks, um, just due to the power of Murti Regent, due to the power of Ragavan, due to the power of the blue package. But I don't think that we're there yet. There, there's, there's definitely some work to be done here. I'd be interested to see like an even more blue list, maybe playing white for cards like Path and Teferi Time Raveler. Like, that would be a pretty interesting spot. I know uh, Autumn Burchett played Esper, this deck, with four Teferi Time Ravelers. They, their tournament didn't go great, but also apparently, like, 
they were one of the people suffering from like the near heat stroke, including a person who got a heat stroke weather. So like said that some I said somebody ended up in the hospital, and I was told I was wrong. I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I. No, McWinsaw ended up in the hospital. They are doing fine now, but yeah, that sucks. It does suck. So Hammer was a deck that this podcast has promoted a lot due to the fact that uh, we have one one of the best Hammer players on our show, and also just it's a also really- Abe. You're the worst. Uh, and then also, it's a good proactive deck. And the numbers actually showed, even though they were low, that proactive decks could do well in this format. And Hammer actually did surprisingly well, Mason. Yeah, a lot of people are saying Hammer's big stinky before the Pro Tour. You know, funny enough, actually local to me, Thomas Gunn played Hammer at the Pro Tour in 5-0 day two to relock his Riki. So congratulations, Thomas. Hammer is, I think, okay... And I think we'll be much better at your tournaments than it is at the Pro Tour. Like, when we look at the Pro Tour, there were some things that were going pretty well for it, right? Like, a lot of Tron. That's a really good matchup. That is something you want to see as Hammer. Uh, but, like, all the Rhinos is, like, something you don't want to see. Meanwhile, Scam is something you're pretty happy to see, right? So, like, Tron and Scam, two decks that are popular, good for you. Rhino's bad for you. And just a low number of Hammer players. So it's hard to exactly know when it comes to the data. But I think Hammer is a proactive mana efficient deck that puts your opponent to the test. And at local RCQs, I, it's pretty high on my list for decks to play um, when the RCQ season turns into modern. I will probably play Scam, as if nothing changes. But if there's like a one-ring ban, Hammer is really high on my list again. Because Hammer just struggles to fight through ring decks. But if that's gone, then things will change, and who knows what that will be. But Hammer is just good, and even if like it's not the best position deck, it's like kills you very easily and is hyper man efficient and really tests your opponent's skill level and yours and, you know, rewards you for playing well. So hammer is a great deck, even if it's not a great deck. I don't have anything to add to this one. So let's move on to Yogg. This is a deck that iterated, had a ton of iterations since Lord of the Rings, like maybe the most of any deck. Now we, we touted multiple players. We touted multiple builds of this deck. This deck did not do well. Yeah, it came in pretty medium. I think there are a couple things for that. One, I think Scam is like not a matchup you're over the moon about. And I think Rhinos is not a matchup you're happy about. And those are two of the three most popular decks in the tournament. Um, and I think a lot of players came gunning for Yawgmoth and kind of had plans for it in mind. Yogg is like a good deck. You know, M- much like Hammer, I think it is a, a strong deck. I like Hammer more than Yogg. But Yogg is good. It is really hard to play, and there are a lot of different ways to build it, and there are a lot of different approaches. Like, if you just looked on Twitter, for example, a lot of people moved away from the Zerk list that we talked about a few weeks ago, including Zerk, who had a, a feature match against uh, Nasif in round four, if you want to watch that. It was pretty good. And then there were people who moved towards Elven Choir, which we talked about as a card to let you play off the top and combo more. That was an interesting approach to so that main. We saw that side. We saw uh, Team Channel Fireball, like Aspiring Spike, Reed Duke. Those players went a more mid rangey approach. So there's a lot of different variations of Yogg, and I, I almost it's not really doable. But I wish we could sift through them and kind of have even more data. Because I'm curious to know, like, was mid range a little bit better yeah, than I, the combo? I would love that too. Mm-hmm. It would be really interesting. And I also think that like Yogg, one of its best matchups was almost taken off the board. Like it was still played, but like Creativity is another deck that underperformed. That is quite literally Yogg's best matchup, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's maybe not true. I mean, of the the best decks, it's probably true. And you know, creativity, creativity, 
did about as well as I think people expected than that. Like it did a little bit better than, than like the Yogg decks it did. It, it, it did better than like living end, but it, it underperformed for how good it was before the Lord of the Rings set. Right. Yeah. Before Lord of the Rings creativity was the deck. Yeah. It was, it was the best deck and having it fall, I think hurt Yogg. Whereas like people were still playing creativity. Thus Yogg continues to shoot up. With its new additions, I, I'm not going to pretend like the, the Lighted Halfling isn't still a heck of a magic card, right? Like, you know, it, it still is, but it is like, okay, well, what is the format about? And is it about the Lighted Halfling stuff? I have still, and no, and like Derek worked on this deck too for the Pro Tour, and I talked to him a bit, and I would love to talk to him a bit more about why no one played the innovation of golgari rot farm or boil grazer and halfling as the dex mana ramp package i was instead of like too. i was literally thinking this after listening to jerry t yeah i because yeah we mentioned it a little on our show too where it's like oh maybe they'll do it and, I, and in my mind i thought it was a given right like zerk has done this before it all works really well with the ring it makes a ton of sense yada 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 it fits like the mid-range game plan it fixes and the, no one it did fixes it. the problem with Orcish Bowmaster, which was going to be seen in tons of numbers. Like it made a ton of sense, and no one did it. Yeah, and I don't really understand why. And to be fair, I haven't put a ton of work into that, and maybe that just isn't very strong. Maybe that's like too much work for the squeeze, and maybe that's why Zerk moved away from it before. I don't know. I know that Zerk the Yog Master didn't play it at the Pro Tour, and he's the one who found the tech originally, so I know he knows about it. So. This is my my bat my Batman beacon to Zerk. Zerk, tweet at me. What, why didn't you do it? Someone explain. I don't understand. Yeah, come on, the but podcast. that is tell, I, tell us why. <laughs> Just tell yeah. the listeners. If the One Ring is around ne- after next week, I am starting there on like, okay, I have my Rakdos scam deck. I know what to play with it. I'll work on it in the weekend of. I'm gonna figure out why no one's done this because no one can tell me a good answer. Yog, I think, is also incredibly hard to play, and that is uh challenging to play against pro tour level players when your deck is really hard and the thing they need to do against you is pretty binary uh let's talk about titan next both you and i have played this deck i think that it's probably like if if we could have a deck and be one of the best decks we might both pick this deck like what's going this deck this tech top for the pro tour i think nobody expected mm-hmm. that yeah dominic harvey uh really came through and crushed with it it was funny when i saw dom win his feature match in round 13 I was taking like a little five minute break from helping my mom move. And I was like, you know, there's so much strong there. Dom's live for this top eight for sure. And ended up getting there because of an unfortunate draw situation with Hayne. But really he kind of carried the archetype. There weren't a lot of players on Titan at the pro tour, him and Jack Potter, uh, both Canadians who worked together, both played in I, a couple other people did, but Dom is sort of the amulet guy who will actually be on the show next week to talk about. So if you want to hear about that, his journey, we're having Dom on the show. Finally, we've been trying to get him for forever, and it just worked out, you know. So, anyways, uh, I think Titan is, like, pretty good against some of the stuff going on in the Pro Tour um, and is a deck that has raw power behind it and can overwhelm things, but doesn't line up super well against everything going on and at the field at large. Like, I don't love your Merktide matchup still. I know Dom doesn't. I don't love your Scam matchup. Dom beat it four or five times in the Swiss, lost in the top four, but, like, I don't think he was very happy with that matchup. I don't love your like blue black Merktide matchup. I don't love your living in matchup at all. Your creativity matchup isn't even that good. So like this deck has advantages and has combo finishes, but I believed Amulet Titan to be 
a deck that rewards you for playing really well. And Dom is just has been even before this, I would have said the best uh, amulet Titan player in the world consistently puts up. Yes. There are people like mistaken in on uh natural online to also do well with it, but Dom is the guy when it comes to Titan and you get rewarded for that sort of thing in modern. Yeah. When I saw Dom's bracket, I was like, oh, he's on the wrong side of this bracket. That sucks. <laughs> like sometimes, sometimes you lose this game. Sometimes it's a bad matchup. I'm really excited to have Dom on and I am going to save my thoughts to ask him because I think that he, anything that he says is going to be better than what I'm going to tell you about Amulet right now. Like I played Amulet at RCs or RCQs. I've, I played it on Magic Online, but like he's going to give us better information. So we're going to move on to four color Mason. I'm not even going to try to explain what happened with this deck. I'm going to let the king of four color talk about it. Go ahead. So, I haven't liked four color for a bit in the sense of the way everyone's playing with halfling and let that kind of stuff, right? Basically the consensus really quickly was halfling's the truth. It's super strong. You got to play it or whatever. And like, I do think halfling is a strong card and a good ad for this sort of deck. But the problem was that it wasn't the best ring deck and things like Tron are really good. And then halfling makes you more susceptible to things like scam. So I think four color is pretty medium right now, and I would not be excited to play four color at all. Uh, now, the controlling decks are something I'm more excited about playing, where it's like blue white with some Omnaths or with some Rens. That is like much more in line with what I think is actually strong. But these like live these elemental tap outy decks are easily attackable and not actually all they're cracked like all they don't seem to be cracked up to be, and they are just incredibly punishing to certain types of decks, and so. If you're playing a deck that these things are strong against, you are really weak to them, and you probably can't overpower them. If you are strong against them, they can't really overpower you. And it creates some really polar matchups from a deck that 12 months ago, if I told you that, you would be laughing, you know? Because it just would be so far from the truth. So I I think four color is just stone cold, pretty okay. I think that four color had exactly one thing going for it going into this weekend. And that it had a very green matchup against Rakdos. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really fact, good against yeah. In fact, it is its only green matchup on the mm-hmm. spreadsheet that uh, Frank Karsten posted. It is actually its only good matchup. Yeah, and that's even with, I think, making your deck worse against Scam. Too. Yes. Like, I don't think Halfway helps that. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> and as somebody that, like, you know, had just cut their teeth with Tron recently, I, I was delighted to see somebody play this deck. I, I think this deck has a lot of problems. One, I think that like big mana decks get rewarded for the ring, and it's not just Tron, it actually is Amulet Titan, too. And thus, you know, two of your worst matchups became matchups. And then people ended up playing Scapeshift decks, too, which also are terrible matchups. Like there, there was, th- this was, I think, a bad choice going into the Pro Tour, but could be like a reasonable choice going into your RCQ if you figure it out. I don't think there's a reason to want to play 60 color four, 60 card four color right now. Like I just, this is how, you know, I don't think it's good either as I haven't been pushing any Patreon content on it. Right. Like I'm not going to push something that I think isn't true. And I just never posted about four color. And it wasn't because I was hiding tech for my friends with the PT. Yeah. So I was like, I don't think this is very good. Yeah. Speaking of a deck that one of us really loves, I, I was exactly medium on creativity going into this event. I think the deck performed, Exactly medium. Here's the thing. 
is that Yogg is a really, really bad matchup. And Scam is, I think, a medium matchup. Uh, like, it's kind of whatever. I think that the data said it was 31% versus Rakdos. It was, like, abysmal. And to me, if you're going to be bad against the worst deck, the best deck going into the event in Yogmoth, or the two best decks, I guess, quote-unquote, going to the event, it was just not a deck for this event. And the thing about creativity is that it does have good matchups, it does have good cards, but I think the disruption of a 1-1 with Orcus Bowmasters was going to be too much for this deck to overcome going into the event. I agree. I think that plus Blood Moon... Plus, like all these oh, other yeah, matchups, are just going to play more Blood Moons too. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like it's like, all right, hey everyone, what's the strongest ring deck? What does it ask of you? It asks, I have a bunch of mana. Okay, Tron. Okay, cool. Everyone knows that. What's a good way to fight Tron? A Blood Moon. And so, like that sort of stuff and being proactive, I think, is a real problem. I think creativity, and I, I don't super enjoy playing it, so I'm happy to see it at a little bit of a low. I think it's got some real troubles. But I'll say this: if uh, the ring gets banned. Whoop! That deck's high up again in the rankings because it is basically better four color. Um, it does everything four color does with a combo finish. Yeah. So I agree. I, I think that, I think that this deck will not exist as long as the ring is in play. And it, it, it's funny, right? Because like you saw people on MTGO specifically like trying to do different packages, whether it's Emrakul, whether it's Atraxa, but like none of them are going to Rastodon. Yeah, there were crazy things going on. But the truth all is, of your Tron lands. And, bah, bah, bah. and you saw you saw at the SEG like this deck ending up in top fours. Like mm-hmm. it happens. But the truth is, is that Archon is just so much better than the other things because it it's not just a combo finish. It's like you have to deal like if you have to deal with two Archons at once, that's fine. But now you're down like six resources. And, and all the deck does is it fights over singular resources the whole time. So it one for ones you forever, and then all of a sudden it, it six for ones you, and then it asks you to answer these huge things in play. And that is really good unless your opponent has drawn six extra cards this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not as good then. Also, like, one of your key terms for playing it is the turn they yeah. develop their card, and you're like... Well, I could. Uh, I, I could get this Archon in play. It doesn't do anything. I, <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, your deck plays either like Carns or Leyline Bindings because you're a one ring deck. All right, I guess I'll die. Like yeah. I don't know. It's so, rough. It's a rough world yeah. for us creativity players. Just like it's a rough world for you four color players. We get to commiserate. You gotta be. You gotta be it's worse for me. As soon as things get good for you, it's bad for me again. It's like creating creativity's back. It's just like the guy she tells me not to worry about. Yeah, you know? uh, I always was, buddy. I always was. Uh, Living end is the last deck that we want to talk about. This is a deck that I feel like got worse because Tron got better. Here's the thing: people don't like to admit this. Tron is a really good living end matchup. It is almost free because of the way that Tron decks get to be built. And Living End has problems. Uh, And one of the problems happens to be a black, black creature out of the scam deck. Dolphy Voidwalker. Oh, Dolphy. I was thinking of Grief. No, no. (laughs) Dolphy Voidwalker obliterates this deck. And so Mm -hmm. when two of the three best decks just kind of have free cards against you, that's a rough world to live in, Mason. I So, like, another thing, I predicted Living End to win. 
Because even though I thought there was going to be a bunch of scam, I think Living End is just underappreciated and underplayed a lot. I, I think the deck is really strong. I think the Tron stuff, like specifically Oblivion Stone, is like a really problematic card for you to beat. Like that plus Ugin, it's just like just a lot. And it really forces you to have your force negation on time and have everything going. And that can be a really tough ask, especially in these games where you're sort of incentivized to go for it sooner than later because you don't want to get Karn plus Chalice avoided. Uh, but you also like need to have all these other things going. So I think living it is good. I think, you know, if you like had that deck where you have it and you're getting ready for RCQ season, thumbs up. It's good. You're going to do well. You're going to struggle with scam a little bit. Get some cards for that matchup. Play some dismembers. You got to do something. But deck is good. It just does have some issues. Yeah, a lot of the top players in Utah actually play this deck. And it, it's it's really good. Um, I would never play this deck. I don't know if anyone uh, on this podcast has ever played a Living End Mirror. Um, yeah, I have. It's pretty fun. No, it's not. Uh, yes, it is. All right. Well, you know, different Just creature combat. You like Limited. You like Limited. Uh, different strokes for different <laughs> folks. Um, but I think that I would love to be the only Living End player in the room. Is like kind of how I view this deck. It's really good against rhinos too. If you're local area, have a lot of rhinos. It's quite good against rhinos. <laughs> they don't get those. I have a question for you, Spencer. I have a, I ha- a hypothetical. Yeah. Let's say the Hinderocker supercomputer drops his mind knowledge, and we find out Living End is like the best deck in modern by a lot. Let's just say it's like ten percent better than everything else, but only you know it, right? But like. You mentioned your local area has a lot of living end players just by chance, right? Would you register living end? No. I really don't no. I really don't want to play the mirror. Ten percent better? Ten that's what I'm saying. That that is an astronomical amount better. Just learn to play the mirror, man. Ten <laughs> percent a it lot. An unfathomable number. Are you telling like, me? Are you telling me that you have a supercomputer that says this, Mason? No, I'm just asking you a hypothetical. Oh, okay. Because you said you hate playing the mirrors. And no, I, I would, think I would learn of... that. If it was 10% better, I would learn them. I mean, I played Hogak. Like, that's that's the least Spencer deck of all time. Like, come on. Uh, right. I, I, I was more just calling out the mirror thing. Because I no. think people bring that up a lot. And it's valid or whatever. Fine. No, no, no. I, you want to, but wait, I, think like, I think I've proven a lot of times that I'm willing to learn a mirror match. Come on. Like well then th- then learn the, the living I, it's a miserable like I mean I say that and then everybody says the same thing about creativity and I really love the creativity mirror so maybe I just I think they're very similar <laughs> you just you you're you just try right. to get, stop they just stop go second and you just play your you need to move on <laughs> <laughs> you're like you're like God I hate living in it's like you sit there and you try to jockey for position and then you're like what do you like about creativity well the cool thing about creativity is I sit there and I jockey for position. Stop. <laughs> Stop calling me out. It's so fun. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, let's talk about overall format vibe, Spencer, while you laugh here. What modern, what matters in modern today? So I think that there are like a couple things to call out. I think that Mulligans is the actual most important thing in modern. That's so funny coming off of our last podcast. Because that was like the the point we like hammered home. It was like the the two most important things are mulligans and deck choice. But it, it is true that is the most important thing. On the second thing is like packages. I think packages is something that I have never really considered when it comes to deck building the way that I do today. So like the the blue package that we talked about, right? Like whether it's subtlety, 
and force of negation and the the blue cycler uh that's that's really important whether it's the scan package whether it's the the right package for uh interaction of things like rhinos like rhinos package is actually funnily enough the rhinos package itself like the the Cascade spells and the Rhinos, that's just a separate part, right? The thing that actually matters is the Cascade spells and the spells that you pick to interact with your opponent is actually the interesting package here. And I would say that, like, that is actually the second th- most important thing in Modern. And I think we saw that in the Tron builds as the the, the thing, the cream that rose to the, to the top is actually the decks that cared about that the most. And I think that it also shows why things like Merktide throws to the bottom, right? Or or sunk to the bottom is because like and and creativity for what it's worth is the next that I, you know, had the most experience with, is they didn't figure out the packages that they needed to interact with the things that were at the top. Those would be like my top two things that matter in modern. And then I would say that my third is is mana advantage in this format. In like the format right now, I think mana advantage is really important. And what I mean by that is if you're not playing like free spells like scam is a really good example of a deck that gets to play a mana advantage while it doesn't look like they are. But like you, if you're casting six mana worth of spells or whatever on turn one, that's a huge mana advantage. Yeah. Getting like a grief in the play, like while you're going down cards, you're picking, you're not going down so many cards, right? In comparison, you're down one card, but you have a four, three on board to like, them losing their two best cards or their two most key cards, right? Uh, I, I would add on my last thing is sort of what matters in modern today are two things, uh, and they're specifically cards. It's the ring and Orcish Bowmaster. Like the ring is the ultimate card advantage card. It is defining the format, and Orcish Bowmaster is the best hate card for the ring. And also, inversely, is really good against things like Ragavan. So where some people might try to go under. The ring with things like a Ragavan tempo deck or whatever, or some sort of aggro deck, Orcish Bowmaster does a really good job of stopping that. And Bowmaster, we haven't talked about enough of that card. It's really good at just buying time. So those are my my two big things. Yeah, I kind of highlight that in packages a little bit, but like one of the things that impressed me the most watching coverage this weekend was actually Fable with Bowmaster, where it gives you inevitability as well as like a repeatable removal for like things that try are going to try to scoop surprise you i was really impressed by that what are people going to do to try to combat those two new cards there's a lot of things just in general it might be a situation where you have to shift decks and not cards which i know isn't people's favorite answer but that's sort of my head jumps so what about you spencer yeah i think that i kind of talked about like where my head's at and i think you did too where we're both looking at decks that might have more room to grow within the decks that we talked about that didn't get there at the PT. So you talked about Yogg. I talked about Merktide decks and kind of combined, like, the idea of... I, I didn't know that Autumn had played Esper, for example. Actually, really interesting to me to think about playing Teferi in that that shell. And I could see how something like that is helpful. I, I could see Merktide deck going to three colors with, like, it's basically mono blue, but you're playing these other subset of cards because of the modern mana bases is an interesting way to do this. I agree. I want to talk about the elephant in the room real quick. And that's that in seven days from this recording, there's a our, our BNR announcement for the year. There's one BNR announcement per year. And then they said anytime a set comes out, they have a three-week emergency window that if there's something on the lines of like 
Hogak, Felidar Guardian level good, they will ban. If not, they will wait until the next the rotation next year, specifically to help standard players. And the eternal formats are just going to deal with that. So there's one BNR a year that is scheduled. And then if there's a huge emergency, basically our format's going to die, they'll do something. And that is why I actually think something would happen. If there was just like yada yada, you know, new sets coming out, whatever, you know, maybe there's a BNR. We have one every three months or whatever. I wouldn't care. But the fact that it's one BNR announcement for the year, basically, I think the ring is done. So it did really well. It didn't do absurdly well, but it did really well. I think it is a really bad look uh, for modern. And I think a lot of players who are going to go to RCQC are going to be like, oh, I feel like I have to get the ring. And it's going to actually push players away, which Watsi doesn't want. And so I, I think the ring probably goes on a long enough timeline anyways and just cut its head off now. If you would ask me before this podcast, I would say there was a 0% chance that there were bans. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I I think it's a, I would bet the opposite. I would bet you there's a 90% well, chance. So here's the thing. Bad. Now that I know that like <laughs> they can't, they can't like emergency ban the ring in the next set. That's weird. So here's the thing too, right? And this is like a big part of it to me is we're going into RCQ season. Right. And basically saying a bunch of these decks are invalidated because of the ring. It's just going to push player engagement down. And Modern already has a lot of backlash about how you have to buy these new cards. I don't think the ring is going to change that for people when it feels like it invalidates so many cards. Yeah, it, it, and I think the Orcish Bowmasters is in cahoots with the ring when it comes to that. So you kind of curve both problems if you ban the ring. Yeah, I, I think that the ring exemplif- or exacerbates the Orcish Bowmaster problem. And thus, yes. if you're going to ban something, you're going to ban the ring. And ha- I, I would assume that if something gets banned, it is the ring. And knowing the fact that I said that somebody would have to prove that the card was good on the podcast, it just is destined to be banned. You know, the first ban announcement afterwards. So I don't know. They gave us a whole summer with Hogak. So yeah, <laughs> that, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> However, you put in something that I, I wanted to talk about in the bands too. And I actually think there will be unbans. Let me say it this way. If you would ask me before the podcast, I would say there won't be bans and there should be unbans. And I hope that they do it. Now I'm questioning whether there will just be bans and question if there should be unbans. So my general idea on bans versus unbans is you should use unbans as a way to spark interest in the format and to spark innovation. And there are no reasons to do that if you ban the ring. Because then then we have all these new cards from Lord of the Rings and I really, I really think if you like game design and BNR list and stuff, I literally recorded a four-hour video today at youtube.com slash the Mason Clark, where I talk about literally every card in excruciating detail. And basically the summation was I read all these articles and all these posts where there's like, there are 15 cards that are safe to unban in modern. And I vehemently disagree. I think there is one card that is kind of safe, but it's still a little risky to unban. I, I just don't think it's gonna happen. It was Green Sun's Zenith, yeah. yeah I That's think, the one card I think, I think that's like... I think that it depends on oops. how you do it. So, for example, I didn't get to watch the end of your video, but I'll just say this. I think Ponder, Preordain, or Splinter Twin all fall into the safe to unban category if you only unban one. So you unban multiples of any of these. It's really stupid. I would say that Green Sun is also safe to unban. Actually, you could just unban Green Sun's Zenith. I actually don't even think it would be a problem at this point. I mean, there are a lot of problems, and I, I go over those in detail. So I, I, when do, I, I, talk about I do it, think but, that, yeah. like the the deck convergence stuff that you have with the one ring, would be true of a lot of green decks for a minute, 
with Grings mm-hmm. and Zenith. I'm sure you cover that in your video. But, like, maybe that's a problem. I, I don't view it as a problem. I don't hate that. But, like, I can, like, it's why, like, half the commander ban list exists, so people care about it. So, I just think, like, Dryad Arbor, Greens, and Zenith will be, like, a five-card package. And, yes, like, Evergreen that, that's, and That then, is factual. Uh, the the one-mana rampant growth is actually a problem. And it is actually yeah. what got banned. Yeah, and like Renan, and I don't believe Renan Six Orcish Bowmaster make it okay. A, a big part of my video is just because Leyland Binding Solitude yeah. Renan Six Bow, like just because they exist, does not mean oh we should unban Punishing Fire. Do you know what's getting kicked in the head over and over again is creature decks? What if we just smash their skull in? What if they weren't allowed to exist? It's funny. And people are like, I, let's do it. <laughs> I was I didn't get to watch your Punishing Fire, but I hear people say that a lot. That it's like, oh, Punishing Fire is fine. Like creature decks already have a hard time, and it's like. I don't know that, like, unbanning Punishing Fire is, like, the answer to, like, let's let's kick them while they're down is not the answer to the problem. Yeah, it's like saying, like, wow, this dog has, like, three legs. Let's make sure to remove, the like, the things we have in the house to help the dog. Yeah. It's like, no! The this dog, dog, this dog has two legs. Let's dog. remove a leg and not give it a wheelchair. Like, come on. Yeah, exactly. It's just all... I don't know. I, I, I get you. I see... It, it just drives me crazy when people are like, well, we have all these strong cards that already make these strategies bad and they somehow exist. What if we made it even harder? And it's like, is that actually adding anything to the format? I, do, I, do think Fire? I do think Green Sun Zenith helps creature decks for what it's worth. Yeah, I do too. I think it helps yeah. creature decks. And I think there's counterplay. And I think the biggest problems are it's the package is sort of an auto include in a lot of decks, like probably 95% of green decks. All the green cards throughout the rest of the time have to be like thought about with green something in mind for modern, if it's like a straight to modern product. And then the games are more repetitive because you have access to your cards more consistently. But there, there are cool things like one ofs and all that sort of stuff. So like I don't know. There are there are good things about the card. So I don't, yeah. I don't know, whatever. I spent No, it's totally fine. So what would we play? I'll go first. They're gonna unban pod pod. I would play pod. Uh no. Uh I think man, you really messed with me by me not knowing this in the middle of this episode. Mason, you teaching me stuff really changed my outlook. Yeah, I like, I like had answers for these. Like, oh, if, if the ring doesn't get banned, I would play Rhinos. I think Rhinos has this weird ability to adjust in a lot of ways that I did not believe that it had before this set, mm-hmm. and because of its it be unique blue package. It's not unique, but it is it is really good for Rhinos to have this package. And it's you know, it's its ability to have the biggest things in play because of the the lack of Murktides, the lack of the you know, these these big creatures, it it has a very unique position in the metagame that it did not have before. And I think that's where I would start. If the ring gets banned, I would just play creativity. I don't even think that like it would be that hard to like I think Reprieve is already a really good addition for that deck. You know, it also answers to a lot of halfling problems for the deck. Like that that's where I would start. What about you? Assuming no changes, I am shook to my core, stuck on my bed for 10 minutes. And after I get up, I'm just like, well, I got my scam deck, and I'm gonna go try some Yogmoth stuff and see if like the ring plus Yogmoth is as good as I thought and cry as I purchase the rings. And then if that if the it's let's fair, say it's they just probably the cost what your profit was on the rings. <laughs> you sold that. I mean yeah, I, I did make a nice, a nice bit of change off that. So I am probably breaking even, which, you know, I cry a single tear. Anyways, um, I think that if there was a banning, the first place I would go to is still Scam. I'd be like, listen, 
this deck is still strong. You're going to have to prove to me that you can't beat this, but Hammer would be really high on my uh, priority list, as would Living End. Those are two things I think would be really good. I want to play four-color stuff, but I just don't think it's very good in a world where creativity is strong. Well, Mason, it was fun to talk about Modern with you, especially after such like an amazing Pro Tour to watch. Uh, it really was... At least for me, like one of my favorite pro tours. So, you know, having had the chance to go watch it, like Mason said, there was amazing coverage, a lot of things to cover. If you want to join the conversation, join Patreon. And one of the benefits you get as a member of the Discord, that's patrons of $5 or more, you get access to the Patreon question. Like Mikey, who asks, rate these five anime first to fifth Dragon Ball Z, Yu Yu Hakusho, One Piece, Sailor Moon, Naruto. Mason, I must ask, are we saying franchises or the thing on the screen, which is their original run? We're saying the things on the screen, and we're giving no clarification because our podcast is going long. Sure. We're just going to say it. Okay. So what's your five? Uh, Top to bottom. Yeah. So number one is Yu Yu Hakusho. Number two is One Piece. Number three is Dragon Ball Z. Number four is Sailor Moon. And number five is Naruto. Mason? Top to bottom. I got Naruto, One Piece, DBZ, Yu Hakusho, Sailor Moon. Your list is terrible and you should feel bad. Uh, <laughs> YouTube comments. Uh, you can improve when you work down, recovery more quickly, and more enjoyable through a social event and soaking just a bit less compared to a usual win. Every small improvement counts. Being able to do everything for three straight days is a win if you usually take a full week to get back on your feet. This was left on one of our uh, topics where we talked about mental state. And I, it's really cool to see listeners like kind of internalize for themselves and, and think about these type of things. So just uh, shout out to this listener. Uh, if you want to hear your comment read, if you have something to say, head on over to the YouTube channel. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, the best way to do that is Patreon Discord. Uh, patrons of $5 more, the public Discord. That's a link in the show notes on the, the, um, the website, uh, the YouTube comments. You can follow us on whatever the social media platform of your choices. I'm sure that we're there. Uh, and then you can check out Drafting Archetypes, the other podcasts on our network. Like, subscribe, comment, review. Reviews are the best way to support the show. The show will always be free. And if you get the chance to review the show on wherever you listen, it really does help the show out. Mason, what did you learn this week and where can people find you? I learned Javier Dominguez and I have the same birthday. Uh, <laughs> no, I, my, my learning thing uh, for this week, I, I think it was talking about like specifically the blue, black Merktide list and sort of our differing opinions that are close, but there is like a clear delineation between us. And it's clear that like you're in one camp and I'm the other. And there's some truth is probably in the middle and I just need to, I think, think about that and process that a little bit. Mine was live on the show. I did not realize that we were down to one band announcement of the year outside of emergency bands. That shook me a little bit. I don't think that I agree with the decision. And the last time that they did something like this, they reverted the decision within six months. I don't know. I like If it were up to me, I would not ban the ring. And then I would let it play out for a few months and then ban it next time if it's needed. But if that's not available, then like we just have to ban it. So I don't think we can let the ring stay for a year. Oh, I just no, think it's not. like just not. Yeah, 
off the table. So thank you everybody so much for listening. Don't forget to support the podcast in the way that you can and share it with your friends, your family, your, your enemies. If you really don't like us, thank you so much. We'll see us on next time with another episode of Constructive Criticism. Miss you, Ed.